How's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning and let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. So instead of asking us where the YouTube is located, where the Patreon is located, where the merchandise is located, you can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, in addition to the existing Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes, we're also giving people invites to the new voice social media networking club clubhouse so right now it's closed off it's in beta testing you have to be an iphone member but if you join patreon and through patreon join the discord you will be able to get uh, clubhouse invites and the reason why we want people to get those clubhouse invites is because we're doing a lot of stuff with the creators and the podcast fans and you need to get invited to take part of that including a new weekly creator and fans show that we've started over there where you get to interact with us and with each other so definitely become a patron for five dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks and without further ado here is the episode take care hey 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 how's it going champagne sharks this is trevor t our guest that we have on today before we started recording um we were just talking and catching up and we realized it was actually a lot of good content we were saying. So we stopped mid convo and we're going to try to recapture the magic. I don't know if it's possible, <laughs> but let's see if we can recapture the magic, Chrissy. So if you don't mind just telling people who you are, what you do, where they can find you. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for having me. My name is Chrissy Malazzo and Currently, I mostly work in like branding and copywriting, but I started out um, when I was like 23. I'm 30 now, proudly 30. <laughs> um, but when I was like 23, I started writing online at Thought Catalog and I had a lot of like aspirations to just be sort of one of those like proto influencers, you know what I mean? And that's kind of I had no real career plans, <laughs> but I was like, I'm going to be a writer and make a show out of my life and write a memoir and all of these things. Um, and I like your honesty about that. Like, I like you yeah. don't pretend to have had these lofty aspirations of I wish creating I war and peace. Because I feel like a lot of people pretend that they had these lofty aspirations, but they just wanted to make a movie about their life or yes. be an influencer, where at least... You're very cognizant and self-aware. I've had a lot of time and literally counseling <laughs> to reflect on this stuff um, because I think what I was doing was like projecting all of my not fulfilled desires in life, as a lot of people do, onto career stuff. Um, and I think a lot of people that are in media now in this like giant overblown sort of content production sphere that's been created would be happier if they could figure out what their grievances were on a personal level and not keep kind of churning them out in these content pieces and also not keep conflating what these platforms are giving you as like actual validation, right? Or like actual development, actual critical thinking. Um, because I do think there are some people who are great thinkers and great writers, but I 
kind of quickly but slowly over the years realized like that's not what I'm doing and I'm unable to do this stuff. And if anything, I was getting I was always getting rewarded for thoughtless, superficial shit. And I also think a lot of people would be happier if they worked in branding because when, it's a more realistic uh, application say, of this stuff. When you were saying uh, you weren't doing that stuff, like, what do you mean by that? Um, so basically, when, when I was at Thought Catalog, what I was tasked with doing was writing like four to five content pieces a day and mostly in like listicle format. Um, like what you would see on BuzzFeed. And it was taking all of my like personal experiences and being like 25 cringeworthy things guys do during sex, like 30 things you you think about when you're suicidal. <laughs> and um, I thought that it was a means to an end and that writing these sorts of things would get me some sort of uh, cachet and eventually I would be able to do real writing somewhere. But I really had no idea what that necessarily was. And I said that I wanted to write for TV, but I also didn't um, seek any sort of like practical experience in that way and was more so like on a path of just doing whatever quick thinking stuff for $300, $400 for whatever website would have me. And I so, think once you realize that you're just part of a churn, you can either legitimize the churn <laughs> and think that you have some sort of importance and you are learning things and becoming a better thinker, or you can kind of say, okay, this is not, this is no longer a means to an end. It's not going anywhere. There's nowhere to go. So by legitimize the churn, and actually, before I get to that question, when you had like the top 25 cringe things guys do during <laughs> sex or the top 30 things, could you actually remember or had 25 cringe things happen to you during sex? Or did you have to start like manufacturing stuff to make the list? Like, No, you um, definitely manufacture. Like the, okay. the, the way the sausage is made <laughs> at that time, at least, was you have a bunch of people in whatever like Slack was at the time and you're all sitting there giving each other ideas for you come up with like a clicky concept before you actually write it. So mm. you're coming up with the headline before you actually have any of the content for the headline and then you run out. So then you're like crowdsourcing it. And then you also are literally crowdsourcing it from Twitter. So you're looking at what other people are saying. And people talk about that now sometimes about like, don't get your ideas stolen by like tweeting them because someone will take them. And that is true because <laughs> that happens with everything now, like media criticism and everything else. Oh, yeah. Like I showed you that thing where uh, someone sent me an article. And to me, I don't really know for sure that it was taken from my tweets because I think it's a very true kind of obvious insight. But right. people were saying, you remember that, that article that I sent you where a lot of people get sending to me and they're like, uh, I'm sure this guy took it from a thread of yours. Uh, About ambient that, television, right? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, at the same time, I kind of realized if I was throwing it out there, that was going to happen. Like, I didn't right. think I'm going to make, I think some people make a Twitter thread and think some editor is going to discover them and be like, <laughs> hey, here's a book deal, you know? And if I throw something out there, I pretty much throw it out with full knowledge um, that I'm throwing it out into the ether, as in right. the things that I think are important, I try to save for not putting uh, out there. But I do think that totally happens. And it's interesting to hear you say this stuff because it kind of confirms, like a lot of your talk about how the sausage is made, um, Whatever the reverse of gaslighting is, like it's making me think I'm I think I'm not crazy, you know? Yeah, validating. But I think yeah. like I I mean I can't speak to what goes on in media nowadays because 
I'm not involved in that, you know, but I do think that these practices have probably only gotten more, like I said, like legitimized and like sort of uh, put into practice (laughs) at major places where a tweet goes viral and then you're writing about the tweet. And then we see people now, like you said, when you put a thought into the ether, you really shouldn't have any expectations on that because what you're doing is you're giving it away to Twitter. You're sacrificing giving the thought away in order to have the audience. Um, and you're actually yeah, exactly. like feeding this machine, this platform, and you're doing free work for them. But a lot of people think my ideas deserve like as if their Twitter is a labor, you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. people are always acting like subscribe to my Patreon for my tweets <laughs> type stuff. And I'm not saying like people's ideas don't deserve to be credited or whatever. I'm saying that um people should have more suspicion about these platforms and who's cribbing ideas on them because it's everybody. It's not just media people. It's literally everyone. So if you have an idea that you're precious about, I don't know what to do with it. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, I I think people, I'm sorry, finish your thought. No, I was just going to say like, I've, I have no suggestions with people with their ideas, but I would, I, I think that part of what I was doing when I was younger was like tap, trying to tap into a zeitgeist, you know what I mean? With whatever I was doing. But I always thought there was something on the other side of the horizon where I would be allowed to think more deeply. And then eventually I just realized like, no, I'm being shallow. I'm being superficial. It's no one's going to give me permission <laughs> to be a less superficial person if I just keep working on this shit. Well, you know, what's interesting. I think there's almost a, a tragic irony to your enlightenment because I feel like you sound like you probably had these vague, these vaguely lofty um, aspirations, but there was a level of delusion to them because um, all you were doing was training yourself to do nothing but content production. And right. the idea that it would um, lead to something um, more substantial was a kind of um, vague, far off goal that was really a substitute for uh, something else, perhaps, like maybe another type of um, emptiness or uh, psychic hunger or something, so to speak. But yeah, I totally seem- agree. Yeah, but it seems like the irony of this is that um, going through that uh, journey of self-awareness, going through that, I'm guessing it's therapy that walked you uh, through to this realization. Um, would you say that's the case? Yeah, I would say that. And, you know, just getting older naturally, hopefully, makes people um, a little bit hopefully. less self-deluded. <laughs> uh, um, in some cases, it makes people double and triple down. So that's, yeah, that's and no that's guarantee. what we see online is a lot of people who are in their 30s doubling and tripling down on all of the problems with the world and none of the problems with themselves. And the interesting thing is that it never, we were talking about this before in that like when I was a couple years ago, I wanted to start a podcast that was vaguely going to be about mental health. And then over, and I was pretty broke at the time and things were pretty shitty in my life. Um, But all I could really like hit the iceberg, the tip of the iceberg on was like privilege discourse. So I was constantly thinking like, no, I'm fortunate. You know what I mean? I'm fortunate. Like I shouldn't feel the things I feel. Eventually I got enough money to live. I went through enough like counseling and whatever. And I realized like the two things that can be true at once are someone's privileges and whatnot, but also like that things are structured to be fucking shitty 
and that yeah. getting enough money to pay down my debts had a huge impact on my mental health. Um, probably, if not more, like at least as much as going to counseling and, and dealing with things did. And so I think the better outcome there is with anyone, as we were talking about before, is being able to have a structural analysis of things um, and to apply like a structural analysis to mental health. Because if, if so many people have mental health problems, it, it's not just about drinking water and finding a therapist who gets you, you know? But you know, like, I think there's an important interplay that um, has to happen. But uh, before sure. I get there, I want to backtrack to finishing my original thought about the tragic irony is that I think it seems that the process you went through that uh, made you kind of let go of these delusions of grandeur, so to speak, left you in a place where you're probably more qualified to actually do substantial, meaningful work. It's it's kind of like, um, you know, they talk about the Dunning-Kruger effect, and I don't know if you've heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect. I have not. Okay. The Dunning-Kruger effect is this thing in um, psychology, and it could be summed up by this quote by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the authors of the study Dunning and Kruger that the concept is named after actually included this quote this quote in the study they start off the study with this quote but the quote goes the fundamental cause of the trouble is that in the modern world the stupid are cocksure while the intelligent are full of doubt and it's right. about how like the most uh deluded, unqualified, or know-nothing people are the ones most arrogant about their own skills and possibilities. And the ones who are more self-aware, mature, and intelligent, because they're smart enough to realize I don't know everything or able to see their foibles more clearly, they underestimate what they have to contribute. And the whole study is about that, where they they find people who are skilled on various levels of the spectrum and ask them to self-evaluate their own skills. And they find that the people who have taken like one or two lessons in something or like novices vastly overestimate their skills. And as people become, and and how far away they are from being an expert and people who are further along on the journey tend to actually underestimate their skills and think they're much uh, worse than they are, but they're, far more realistic in the self-assessment than the um, amateur. And yeah, I actually... Um, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no. I, I was going to say, like, to me, from talking to you, um, you know, both on Twitter and today, like, you sound like somebody that, to me, sounds harder harder on yourself than you need to be because you're harder on that old version of you. But I think you um, actually could produce that thing that you're talking about. Yeah. And I think like, you know, I'll tell my therapist that, (laughs) Um, but I think part of there's sort of steps to kind of getting yourself out of uh, harmful self-delusions. And then part of it that then comes out of it is then building a confidence and a yearning to actually develop your skills. You know what I mean? Like real confidence is knowing what you don't know and being able to sort of have that um, self-esteem. And I think those things are really unfortunately like not encouraged on the platforms people spend a lot of time on. It reminds me, actually, I was 
earlier listening to when you had um, Jason England on the podcast. He was um, he's a professor, I think, and you guys were talking about Jessica Krug or Krug oh, yeah. or whatever. <laughs> um, and he said something um, in your conversation that was really interesting. He said that you know mediocre writers and shallow critiques aren't new, um, but they were never like legitimized or awarded in the past the way they are now and there is mediocrity now is expertise when it comes to media and he said one of you said at least that it creates an economy of snapple facts and this is talking about like race discourse and stuff but it's like what you were saying before when it comes to like tv critics and stuff you create and I, i also was reading a piece um from 2017 on current affairs that in my like tumbling through these tv articles i found that was from matt chrisman and he said one of the bitterest ironies of the digital age is the explosion of content um, and cultural writing hasn't led to like a flowering creativity, but an all-consuming monoculture. And I was like, wow, that is so crushingly depressing. Um, Yeah. But so true. And those two things, I think, play together nicely. You know what I mean? Whether it's in academia or in TV criticism or in content, it's a suffocating monoculture and a mediocrity rewarding thing like you get followers for being positive not for critique whether it's in long form or not Um, i mean it doesn't have to be positive i think it just has to be shallow so it's like if you're if you're snarky and ironic and i mean there are people who are shadowly positive but then there are also people who just get popular by on quote tweeting and dunking all day you know and having a name like uh Come Goku six six six, you know, <laughs> with comma spelled C U M, and this profile that just looks like rehashed Adult Swim weirdness, like you know right. that same like even our weird is a monoculture now. Like when I see like sure. the umpteenth irony account with, you know, trying to look as edge lordy as possible, but then is it ironically edge lordly or seriously edge lordy? Is this is this discombobulated stream of consciousness thing? You know, real earnest weirdness, or did you just search ten other weirdo accounts? I remember yeah. one time I was tweeting something that was kind of earnest, and then somebody one of these profiles like replied to me, and um, they replies and like, why does everyone keep tweeting this weirdo into my uh, timeline? So I went to their page. It's like a vaporwave picture <laughs> of George Bush mission accomplished on the um, helicopter uh, lander, whatever it was. Oh, the, my God. Whatever. Like, it was just so <laughs> contrivedly weird. And my simple, earnest statement, he was calling weird. And it was kind of like, he's just a normie. It's, I, ironically, he's just a normie that his culture, his monoculture is, hey, I'm going to be a part of this thing called weird Twitter. That's where the cool kids are now. And he's put his, so I'm like, okay, if this was really what you genuinely were like, you wouldn't call anybody a weirdo because you would appreciate weirdos, you know? And it's like, it's not that you even think you're a real weirdo. It's that you think this is the new normal. The the new thing to get followers is to uh, camp out in irony or left Twitter and get one of these forced, weirdness accounts you know yeah it's impossible that's just another form of yeah and this guy would probably make fun of libs and if a liberal posts something cringe they'll be up in there in the replies with 50 other people but are they gonna say anything genuinely interesting or weird no they're just gonna cut and paste 
a drill a drill tweet or they're gonna say delete your account the same thing 50 other people are saying but yeah i mean yeah it's like i think even the respawn. weirdness is mediocre now what's that right i i just think it's like we've what's happened has been sort of like this like spawning and it comes from everywhere like you have one thing that feels good to people, whether it's like couching stuff in in irony and being sort of like an adult swim type weird guy, or it's being like a girl who only tweets about her Tinder dates, which definitely like when I was younger, I thought I was so fucking interesting because I was like writing about all the bad sex I had when in reality, I probably hadn't even had that much sex. But online, it was very popular to be like, yeah, this fucking guy said this and this Tinder profile says this. <laughs> and yeah. And I like red flags on the now. bookshelf. That's another yes, popular oh my genre. Oh, my and, God. He's you know, got David men. Foster Wallace. Yeah. And meanwhile, the author probably has some really cringe uh, YA books, you know, like and also hasn't read David. Fo- you know what I mean? Like no oh, one yeah, has read too. the books that they're saying are like people don't read Lolita. They just say it's like it's about pedophilia. So it's like what yeah. happened with cuties <laughs> like with yeah. cuties. From what I understand, and I didn't see it, so I'm not going to speak too much on it. But cuties actually was a very moralizing movie, sort of almost anti-Islam and was about this girl like joining a dance crew as a kid and how her parents were overbearing and if if the QAnon crowd had actually watched it, they probably would have liked it <laughs> because oh. it actually comes down hard on their whatever they think is radical Islam. You know what I mean? But what happened yeah. was they reacted to like the the idea of the thing instead of the thing, which is also what happens when people are like, guys who have infinite jests are fucking losers. Yeah. And I think QAnon guys would not have liked cuties just for <laughs> but just for a just for a different reason than why they actually didn't like it. Like I think right. they would have liked the radical Islam stuff. I think you're absolutely mm, right yeah. about that. As far as like how it paints radical Islam in a and I haven't seen it either. I just um going by things that I that I've heard other people say Same. um who have watched it. But what people have told me is on some level, it does do that stuff with uh, radical Islam, but it also criticizes uh, the West. It's not one of those things that tries to make it seem like, oh, the West has all the answers and right. uh, Islam is this all-constricting thing. It kind of, uh, from what I understand, you know, critiques both. Like, the West isn't the answer either with its uh, over-sexualizing and the... Uh, um, you know, childhood uh, exploitation and stuff. But I think a reason why QAnon still wouldn't have liked it, and I think it still ties into even the trailers, is it was just about a black girl or a dark Muslim girl or a black Muslim girl who was engaging in twerk culture. They would have maybe have been mad about it at first and then forgiven it you know, once they found out, oh, it's critiquing and pathologizing that culture, because to them, it would be like, hey, this is what we think those mud people do. You know, this right. is what we think <laughs> they do. They're just a bunch of pathological, you know, over-sexualized, deficient culture. You know, it would just been like a Moynihan report. But that trailer and that movie, white girls being the corrupting influence. And right. <laughs> that's a big fear with these people. They fear that this virginal pure view that they have of the white woman and white culture they feel like feminism you know the white genocide thing uh, crowd has the long tropes of 
feminism and is corrupting. Yeah, yeah, feminism and the non-white foreigner, particularly the non-white male foreigner, are corrupting um, the virginal naive white woman, and by extension, uh, ruining white culture. And they're all going to be a bunch of uh, white welfare moms having single being single mothers to non-white people like that's part of the right-wing paranoia so i think even if they liked what you said about how it pathologizes um um muslim culture to a degree and all that they would have still been mad at the corrupting of the young white girls being uh shown in it yeah i have to watch cuties honestly (laughs) yeah (laughs) now that i watch every other shitty netflix show yeah maybe we could watch watch it and do a follow-up on that like a knowing follow-up instead of uh second i'm sure we would just like reify everything that we already think about it because of there's so much ado about cuties but (laughs) (laughs) stay tuned yeah one uh critique i read that was written by a black Muslim girl. So I think, well, woman, let me say woman, that that helped. I thought, even though I didn't see the movie, it seemed very fair. What she said is, it is a moralizing movie. And, you know, it does try to be um, very measured and whatever, but ends up reaffirming what it's talking about because to make its point, it has way too many scenes that are lingering and the gaze at a camera, you know, that... It tries to make a point about, you know, sexualization of kids or whatever, but it shoots so much footage to make you uncomfortable to drive that point home that it ends up, um, in the writer's view, um, perpetuating the same thing as trying to criticize. And whether I agree or not, that sounds like a reasonable, you know, critique uh, one way or the other or good faith one. But unfortunately, uh, very few of them um, were that nuanced in their critique. They just went to town just with the alarmism, you know? (laughs) Yeah. In ways like QAnon is almost quaint in its like in its rules. You know what I mean? Like while they are, you know, fucking terrifying and it's way more people than anyone realizes. Um, But at least their terms of what they think and don't think are very clear because they're either like insane or rooted in like, you know, very long uh, long-lasting yeah, <laughs> old, conservative doctrine. Yeah, old tropes. Like, right. one was crazy. If you look in every single era of where there's an outsider, they're just always worried about the defiling and corruption of white women. Like, whether it's right. the harem and Rudolph Valentino and his swarthy uh, sex symbol, or if you look, they did it with the Chinese. Like, for example, a lot of um, Asian men complain about how media emasculates them. But Mm -hmm. when I looked up old yellow fever stuff, uh, it used to be the opposite because the early Chinese um, people who were here were only the men were allowed to come. And there used to be all this fear of Chinese men like being these um, oversexed animals who are going to corrupt white women and then afterwards get them hooked on opium and sell them into sex slavery you know so there's that stereotype about them they had it with black people they had it with mexicans they had it with jews back in the um old europe like that's what i find um interesting mm -hmm. about incels is not to cut you off but they incels really take all of that and channel it into the chad and it usually becomes a fear of a very hot white guy 
But then at the same time, incels want to be the very hot white guy. So it's this like all hot guys are to be resented and feared, but they're also yeah. the goal for what you become. <laughs> and yeah, I, I mean, so at least the white Chad. Take. Yeah, at least the white Chad is uh, racially attainable. Like you know, right. but you can't become uh, the black Chad. They have a name for the black Chad too. They call him uh, Tyrone. So. <laughs> They actually tie in Damn. all that old school stuff too about you yeah. know the white genocide stuff mixed in with you know the white alpha the white Chad uh, guy right. and I swear this is going to tie into Queen's Gambit the actual <laughs> uh, purpose of this episode but I can tie it into Queen's Gambit I swear yeah um, yeah we will in terms of uh. Just when you were talking about the gays in the movie we haven't watched in Cuties, I was thinking about how it's interesting that in Queen's Gambit, for anyone who's watched it, that's what we're going to uh, talk about and hate, but mostly the reaction to it. But um, in Queen's Gambit, people were praising it for how... um, nothing bad ever really happens. And in the beginning of the show in the orphanage, I think me and a lot of other people were like waiting for one of the characters to like get molested or something. Yes. That's one thing I want to talk about. Mm -hmm. And then there's a deflating of all dramatic tension and people were celebrating that as like, it's almost like it avoids having any gaze at all. And then more fascinatingly, people still manage to project like, look at how white male writers write a woman at her rock bottom oh, yeah, there was on a it. Lot when of I was that. like, are you fucking kidding me? Like barely anything happened to this person and she was hot the whole time. So I don't know what the fuck your problem is. Oh yeah, they can't they can't make a substantive analysis on anything. Uh, and we definitely have to talk about that. But I'm glad you said that because that was in my notes of things to bring up. And I was re-watching half the series today. I didn't make it all the way through. Would you agree that they deliberately baiting and titillating and dangling the prospect of potential pedophilia? Because I feel like that's not an accident. And I don't think... I feel like they're having their cake and eat it too. They're yeah. using it as an unspoken uh cliffhanger or a way to add tension but then they also want credit for not having it happen yeah so there was i don't know if the intention was for them to get credit for set making setups and then not doing it or if that was like also i understand that there's the source material of the book but obviously you have fucking creative license you know so like i don't whatever i think about this show i think it about the show and it's their fault (laughs) and it's not and i also think novels provide interiority so you can see inside someone's brain and see whether or not they're jonesing to molest somebody whereas yeah it's just visual you just get pregnant pauses and quiet and you have no idea what's in people's brains well we had a couple in queen's gambit there are a couple men like the guy she plays chess within the basement there's the guy who gives her drugs who's like the black attending who i originally thought was like supposed to be her friend and then just becomes completely neutral like same thing with the woman who admits her into the orphanage supposed to be her friend is she evil oh no actually we don't we're not really gonna make a decision here so no one's evil and no one's good (laughs) and no one's lecherous but yeah you know in the beginning everyone just ends up being neutral to her even when she's watching the other kids make out and stuff i'm like okay so she's gonna do something really horny and get punished and then when they had the other 
teacher come from the school and say like, you're so special, whatever. I'm like, okay, so she's going to get molested by him or like one of the teenagers at the school. Like, great. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like from a dramatic standpoint, I'm like, cool, it's all set up. No, nothing like that happens. It's just yeah. chess. Yeah, there was a scene that happened where she's outside clapping erasers or doing something. Right. And I think it's maybe what you're talking about. I missed it the first time. Um, but she looks across and these older boys smoking and one of them waves at her. And she just goes inside. I'm like, okay, what was the point of that? And the show seems to think if we put a bunch of things that can be read both ways over and over again or that are left ambiguous, that's what nuance is, you know? Uh, But really, it's just, like you said, indecisiveness or incomplete things. This is a lot of things that they just kind of dangle out there and then just don't do. But in addition to her playing basement, playing chess in the basement with the guy there's also like he's like i'm gonna bring some other older men to meet you you right (laughs) and when that happened i was like okay are they using the chess as a way to bait her and she's gonna be in this pedophilia ring you know because the creep and they make them act a little bit creepy like i'm normally imagining it but they come in and they're like this is the girl (laughs) right like she's like a specimen yeah the picture thing i was like I, the whole time that I was watching it, I'm I'm like, all right, like time for something traumatic to happen. But and it completely denies the reality of a the time period is ignored almost entirely throughout yep. the show besides like aesthetics. B, it ignores the reality. And if all these people on Twitter who are obsessed with trauma and stuff like that should be looking at this as a show that denies the reality of what happens to kids in orphanages or foster care, especially of that time, especially yeah. if you're vulnerable and you're addicted to pills or whatever they're saying. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, basically, she, through no self-preservation instincts of her own, just looks out through everything in life. She gets drunk and passes out with strange guys mm-hmm. all the time. She's alone with old men who are antisocial in the basement while they bring other older men around and no one's around and she's on drugs. And it's just this weird, like, fairy tale world where nothing bad ever happens to her. And it's kind of weird that it gets a reputation for being this feminist anthem but i think in a way it's almost a celebration of men about hey men aren't really that bad you know (laughs) yeah actually there were plenty of guys during the 60s who were really nice to gals and (laughs) the soviets they probably didn't hate the americans that much like there are endless there was the piece that um was critical of the show in vulture by this writer jane who um she said at one point that stuck with me that everything potentially traumatizing or problematic in the show gets actively taken up as fodder for beauty, whether it's like her addiction or she's doing her makeup and she's on drugs or she becomes a chess champion and all the older guys like dote on her. And one of them is curiously bisexual or gay, I guess. <laughs> and yeah. And as usual, they make no decision. Yeah. yeah. And so as there's usual, no, they take no decision. There are, I was arguing with my boyfriend last night because I was saying that the show annoys me in that way. And then that compounded with the fact that we're watching these chess games over and over, but there are no real stakes to the chess games because 
all of the like the stakes are that she will move on and keep playing chess. But we see her lose a couple times and then she just goes and plays chess again. And there's never like these games are perfect setups for there to be something else happening during the game. You know what I mean? Like characters playing at things and tension that aren't on the surface. And the game is a device for that. But they end up not using it as a device. They just use it as purely a game. Like when she gets her period um, during the game, that has no consequence. She just runs back to the game when she's playing simultaneous with all those guys mm -hmm. and like the sexual girl who said she fucked all of them. I'm like, great, they're going to have an orgy. Nope, it's just chess. (laughs) And so like, fine. But then why does it get celebrated as she's not defined by her trauma? Yeah, because she's they wrote this character that has all this trauma, I guess, but it could be a lot worse and it doesn't matter anyway. And you know what was funny with the simultaneous with the guys is there seems to be a lot of there seems to be a lot of weird pedophilic stuff undertones happening. And because they don't you know what it's like, it's like the movie The Last Jedi. And um, <laughs> you might have liked it. I don't want to. I, um, I didn't see it. I, okay, I don't okay, watch Star Wars, unfortunately. OK, no, you're not missing anything. But, you know. <laughs> I don't want to, um, you know, focus on whether it was good or bad. I personally wasn't crazy about it. But one thing that it got a lot of credit for was subverting stuff, right? But Mm -hmm. what it really did, which I thought was silly, was to me, if you're really going to like subvert something, do something wildly original, then just avoid the trope altogether. You know what I mean? So um, have a Star Wars movie about something totally different totally different plot elements you know but what this thing did was it walked you 80 percent of the way down a trope then just did something that wasn't what normally happens in the trope so then it's just avoidance it's not if you're gonna do like you said with the trope you either have to do something different entirely and sort of move outside of the paradigm itself or exactly to subvert a trope you have to traffic in it and like in this show the tropes People said that it was subverting tropes because, you know, she's not divided by her trauma, whatever, whatever. But it's actually just using those tropes and reifying them, but just then taking out whatever the stakes there are and whatever the dramatic potential is, just like flattening it so that it's just purely enjoyable to watch. And I'm totally fine with things being purely enjoyable to watch, but but I'm not fine Yeah, I'm not fine with it being like a critical darling (laughs) being celebrated for, I thought bad things were going to happen, but then they don't. Isn't that so clever? Like, no. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because if anything, all you're doing is just trivializing when the bad things do happen to people, you know, but because then what? Are they just victims of bad luck? Was Were they just not pretty enough? You know, were they just not smart enough to get out of it? Because she doesn't do anything to avoid these bad things. She technically does just a bunch of bad choices. Driving yeah. alone with strange older men to go places, not telling the people tasked with uh, being in charge with her, where she's really going. Like, like, for example, they put you in a position where you almost feel like the head of the uh, school is something's wrong with her for <laughs> yeah. not wanting her to play chess alone with some strange man that nobody knows what they're doing. You know what I mean? Like you start thinking, wow, what a bunch of horrible perverts, you know, to project, you know, <laughs> that this guy that like that lives in the basement 
uh, and is surly and doesn't talk to anybody and is a loner and antisocial. Like, how dare they think that guy might be up to something weird playing chess with like a 10 year old girl by himself in his sweaty, dank off to the side uh, basement <laughs> apartment like like yeah also what was wrong she? with that guy i thought he was gonna i thought they were gonna be like yeah he's the janitor and a chess genius because he's a child molester or something but no he just was the janitor and he loved her forever and his love was pure and his intentions were pure and so isn't that sad and that ends up being the magical thing that um gets her to get sober is going revisiting the orphanage um, and going back there, finding how he loved her so purely, even though she owed him $5, <laughs> which yeah, I was like, very that weird. was a lot of money then. Fuck you. But, um, or however much it was, but through no actual change, does she become sober or overcome adversity? It's a magical device that allows her to find inner strength to then quit cold Turkey, which is insane. Mine. But she didn't really quit cold turkey because <laughs> didn't she get uh, drunk the night before anyway? I, I don't remember the exact like trajectory of her like quitting, but I know that it's like she stops drinking and it's basically like, OK, like and it's not really a struggle from there on out. Like at one point, oh. she's like, I kind of want to drink like at the end. Oh, you're um, right. The one where she got drunk was the second to last thing against the yeah. Russian, right? Yeah. Where yeah, she like right. goes and is in France and that girl comes. And I thought that girl the girl who gets her drunk, who's like the model who said she fucked all those guys, um, ends up, she's like French. And I was like, cool, she'll be like a Russian spy. No, <laughs> she's just a friend who wants to get her friend drunk the night before and like whatever. And I forget, did they have a ugh. lesbian, did they have a lesbian fling? <laughs> like nothing, yeah, nothing they, friction okay. doesn't happen on the show. I just struggle to understand people celebrating that rather than just seeing that for what it is and being like, my friend was saying to me, like, you know, not everything has to be prestige TV. And I accept that because she enjoyed the show. And I was just like sort of bickering with her about but it. But people and are like, praising it like it's prestige TV is the problem. Yeah. And the the Matt Christman piece I was reading earlier today was sort of about how prestige TV got to be so celebrated, even though it it was often bad and very superficial and on the surface, like with shows like Mad Men, for example, the dialogue was often like, okay, <laughs> like you're just going to go ahead and say that. But there are a lot more people have, I don't watch TV really looking for what's great and what's not. I'm, I'm truly watching for diversion. And when it comes to this show, I was watching for diversion and then just kept getting frustrated how um how insulted i was as a viewer <laughs> just by like stop trying to toe the line between like smart trauma like you know spiral and like just watching this fucking show about chess and i just then once i saw the reactions i was like all right i'm not crazy people really do think this is like smart and good and this show thought it was taking itself seriously i think people thought it was smart and good because it was subtly i think there's two very big impulses that are happening in the culture now and one is this fetishization of trauma and all this all this stuff but the other one is this very childlike hunger fantasy. for yeah, childlike hunger for fantasy and validation and escapism and this thing kind of combines both because it goes through the motions like it's 
um, going to be about trauma. So in a way, you almost think you really did see something about a lot of trauma. Like when that BuzzFeed article says she's not defined by her trauma, but she's not only not defined by her trauma, she's actually not touched by it. She's not really that traumatized, really. Yeah. You know, um, but then it also gives you like the comfort. It's like you said, there's no friction. It takes away all the uncomfort. Like, for example, if it actually had her get molested, I'm not saying like I want her to get molested. But I'm <laughs> yeah, saying- I'm not like I need to watch a show where a kid gets molested. But if anything had happened besides her getting herself addicted to drugs, not that it's her fault as a child, right? But yeah. if this character had gone through more than... <sighs> just this weird drug addiction device, bless you. (laughs) Um, Then I think I would have, if I saw more than just the addiction, if there was anything more than that, it would have made sense. But it was just addiction and genius. And that's it. Like her genius is overwhelming. So she's a drug addict. And at a certain point, I'm like, let the girl fucking drink. She's really good at chess. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I felt watching it. Yeah. And it's like, you don't want to be rooting for the addiction. You want to be... You want to be rooting for something. (laughs) I don't care what it is, but I found nothing to root for when everything was sort of like flatly like, and that Vulture article pointed out, like she just has these men who are so nice to her come in and help her. She's just really loved. She has a loving mom. Um, and, and she's actually kind of she's actually kind of awful to the men. Yeah, in a lot she's of terrible. Way. She's terrible to them, and they always forgive her. And I think maybe that's why a lot of these people found it feminist because they're like, <laughs> to them it's a feminist thing. Like, wow, I can be the biggest bitch I want, and everyone's always gonna love me and make excuses for me and look at me as that heroine. But to me, it actually has kind of a negative stereotype of women. Like, women are just these kind of they're almost like children. Like, you know, right. you, yeah. So you can't get too mad at anything they do and you always have to forgive them. And it's the magnanimity mag, magnanimity of the men that's really on uh, display. They always forgive her. They lead her to the right places. They always- Even the Soviets are nice to her. And this exactly. is supposed to be during the Cold War. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. and people were comparing it to Mad Men and stuff. And I understand aesthetically the comparisons, but again, like not to just, you know, completely harp on this writer, but the the writer for Vulture pointed out that the better comparison is Marvelous Mrs. Nasal, where it's this happy-go-lucky show that takes place as a fantasy during a time where there would have been actual stakes for the character just as simply by reason of being a human being. Um, yes. But there aren't. And then- People were commenting. I looked at the comments on that Vulture article and people were saying stuff like that's, you know, this person just sounds like they have grievances and whatever. And this isn't a good analysis. And maybe that's why she didn't come on the show with us, because I invited (laughs) her to do this episode with us. And maybe she was like, oh, these guys are going to ambush me. Maybe the commenters scared her, but they, I'm sure she did, doesn't read comments, <laughs> but um, the- oh, But she's on Twitter. She's active on Twitter. And I saw what sure. she was getting on Twitter and she was getting oh, the I didn't same even grief look at on Twitter. That. Yeah, yeah, she got and, grief on and Twitter. And she, in the comments, you know, people said stuff about how um, it's possible for stories to take place during a given time period and for those characters to be unaffected by the time period. And I would say that actually it's fucking not. <laughs> And that even if she had 
a more ambient anxiety about Soviets or whatever. The only thing we really got was that sort that Christian thing of like she'll be sponsored by the Christians and she doesn't really agree with that. And actually she likes Soviet sponsorship and or I mean sportsmanship and whatever. Um, and that's fine, but it doesn't really give any perspective to what people cared about at the time. And it you don't really need to harp on it for it to be present. Like even if you think about like someone like Betty Draper in Mad Men having anxiety about nukes, she's still a housewife who was basically completely taken care of and it doesn't really affect her otherwise. But of course it affected everyone. And this is supposed yeah. to be a drama. It's not supposed to be the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, but it basically is the marvelous Mrs. Maisel plays chess and well, is an alcoholic. I, I think what's funny is like when people say that it's like Mad Men, it kind of is like Mad Men, but totally toothless, which is what... Miss Maisel is Miss Maisel is Mad Men meets Forrest Gump, right? Right. Um, <laughs> but even Forrest Gump, at least with the Jenny stuff, had some kind of um, stakes. Even you know, like so for all the saccharine tweeness of Forrest Gump, even that was willing to go somewhere. Which this it keeps walking you to the precipice, and then instead of a cliff, it's just like um, you know this cotton candy at the end. It's just very weird. It's it's like yeah. Yeah, it's it's bizarre, and you know, to go back to the um, pedophilia thing, right? There was a <laughs> lot of baiting to it, right? Where they were kind of baiting it, and then it would just be very innocuous. But it was like, for example, when she does the simultaneous at the school where the guy takes her, you have a bunch of boys walk into this room and stare stare her down, and it looks like you're thinking, um, is this some kind of weird? Like when she's going from board to board, I feel like there there's a sexual undertone to it. You know, right. like she's always looking she's at. She's beating all these boys, and we had also had the setup of her, like you said, looking at boys with clapping the erasers and stuff. That could have been something that they could have built on, even without dialogue. Yeah, you know, just like framing having the boys talk about her differently or whatever. But then she just goes home, eats a, eats a bunch of bunch of candy, and talks to the guy about how like she basically ran through <laughs> all those dudes. And I understood that that was intentional. But at the same time, like you're saying, it was breadcrumbing something that never pays off. But even the words you use sound sexual. And I think it's not even uh, accidental. I think unconsciously, because she ran through all those right. boys. Like like even the word ran through sounds like... But of course. <laughs> ran through is the best way to put what happened. They kind of make it seem like, you know, it almost... There's something orgiastic about it in a weird way. Yeah. But it's like... She, she dominated them, you know, yeah. and um, they kind of traffic in the illicit impulse while pretending to have a subverting opposite impulse. Like, oh, this is actually feminist and empowering. But really, there is this weird, constant conflating of chess with sex. And they started from her um, childhood. So I feel like yeah. whether it's the old man um, grooming her you know but no he's grooming her for chess not sex and oh her her first experience with boys her age was um being taken by an older man into a room where she ran through all the boys he brought in but that wasn't sex that was chess you know yeah uh, and and it was it's empowering. not even like yeah. it's not even like sublimated into you know what i mean like it would yeah. be and by the way like all the the thing that i'm 
harping on a lot is that like all kids are horny and that's when you're going through like a stage and they allude to it and they show it um but then all anything bad that could happen that does happen like you know you're caught touching yourself or you're uh caught like looking at guys or whatever like it never happens it has no consequences and it's like yeah what if everyone just had like a real good relationship with their sexuality and like was brought up really well even even with like and by the way like the simultaneous i was initially referring to in the beginning was the one where she is a teenager. I think she's like 19 or something. And she's playing the guys in the apartment. In New York. Yeah. I thought that would be an orgy. Yeah. And it's not. Um, I, I, knew, but, I knew you were talking about that one. But yeah. when you mentioned it, it reminded me of the simultaneous yeah. in. The, but that's the second time. See, it's very interesting you said that. Like the older one had the same kind of um, Vibe. sexual vibes. But they, they were more comfortable making it a little more overt because she's older. So they didn't have to and disguise it, it as much. And then it doesn't even happen. Yeah, it doesn't and, happen, but they drop the seed in your mind by having the French girl say, hey, I fucked all these guys. <laughs> so now your mind is anchored to associate, um, you know, group sex with the scene. And then the um, simultaneous happens. So I feel like they so the fact that they were so more honest about it in the older simultaneous made me feel less self-indicting about reading yeah. that into the younger one, you know, because yeah. it's the same writer. So I think they kind of want you to gaslight yourself saying, oh, if I think or say this, then I'm the pervert reading into things. And that's probably <laughs> what the defenders or the writer would say. It's like, well, maybe you just have some weird um, thoughts and you should be or on they a, would, yeah. yeah. Or they would say it's like a, a fantasy uh, intentionally where bad things don't happen and whatever, but... It's not a show where nothing bad happens. It's a show where all the bad things that happen are incredibly convenient and mm-hmm. actually serve the main character pretty well. Like even her mom dying and her buying of the house, like at one point she lectures her dad, who that was another thing when the mom mentions that the it was the dad's idea to adopt her. I'm like, all right, that is the clearest reference to like foster kids being used and abused (laughs) like if we have a dad whose idea was to adopt her and then just fully ignores her i'm expecting that he's going to be a creep of sorts no he just leaves um but they kind of tease he's a creep because how about this right uh doesn't he leave the wife for a younger woman they imply so Mm -hmm. so then you think okay so he's into younger women what does that say about his idea to um adopter was he planning to do something with her at some point and it just didn't happen but then the mom says something else as a final line in the scene that i found really weird she's like you know i didn't do good as a wife i didn't learn to be a wife but i think i could be a good mother if you give me a chance i think i could learn and if you promise to never go to denver which is where the guy is <laughs> right and it's like wait why does she want her to never go to denver uh, the innocuous reason could be, um, I to don't want you. To, was that to like to not leave her? Sure. Yeah, yeah, to not leave her or to choose the father over her. But I'm thinking they didn't have much of a connection. Why would she choose the father? And then I thought, no, maybe she thinks the father would try to fuck her. Like, yeah, and that would be that's kind of if you know anything about what 
happens with predators in the in foster care in adoptions whatever like if you've ever watched law and order svu <laughs> like then that's almost a documentary are, yeah it's setting it up um it's very factual um it's it's setting up this idea and then again i don't think it's clever writing to keep avoiding any potential consequences that might occur in the real world i think it's more cowardly and it's not committing to the fantasy. And I feel like even a show like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel at least commits to a fantasy of the yeah. world. And it's by the fucking Gilmore Girls people. This show, yeah. you're supposed to take it seriously. And I I don't understand the just avoid the trauma altogether. Like make it like Annie. Annie, you know, kind of commits to the fact that this is a fantasy version of of orphan life. You know, but this one right. is like if it was Annie, but it was teasing a lot of um, adult trauma, like molesting and drug addiction, but it still had the happy endings of, of Annie. You know, it, it doesn't do the escapism service because it's too um, shot through with weird titillations of um, underage sex and drug addiction and whatever. But it also doesn't do the adult exploration of trauma any service because it never pulls the trigger on any of the stuff. So you don't, it's not like you, it's not like you're learning anything about right. getting over trauma. It's not like you're not not learning anything about how people get over sexual abuse or pedophilia or bad boyfriends or bad husbands or how to get over addiction you know it gives you just enough of it to remind you you're watching a grown-up show but not enough of the actual fallout and resolution of it because i guess writing about that stuff is hard and not fun (laughs) Uh, and also it's like i guess it's just it's a show that's like a bedtime story of a show but it's not enough of a bedtime story like you said for it to be it's not enough of a fantasy for me to have it be uh, enjoyable through and through. Like, it was annoying because it doesn't pick what it wants to be and it takes itself really seriously. And I was like, so I thought everyone would feel that way <laughs> or some people would feel that way. But it seems like instead it was celebrated for doing exactly that and sort of choosing to say nothing Um about anything, about trauma, about the Soviets, about the Cold War, about chess. <laughs> it's like, well, basically all you get from it is like chess is cool. Being a hot genius is awesome. And if you're a hot genius, everyone will be nice to you. So yeah, the character is not really like, someone said it's like a male fantasy, but I think it's more of like the whole like male writers tweet about how a, a woman in her rock bottom wouldn't look this hot in like a cool little camisole set but i think it's more of a female fantasy than a male written thing you know what i mean and it's interesting that it was written by a man well you know what's weird it's both a female fantasy and a male fantasy but the female that it's a fantasy for is a horrible twitter feminist yeah the twitter (laughs) feminist and the guy for who it's a fantasy for i'm not sure if there's a type but I try and think there's an easily digestible type, but I would say it's that guy <laughs> who views himself as a male feminist, probably. Yeah, the you Chad know? male feminist and the yeah. Stacey Twitter editor feminist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The guy who thinks of himself as actually, you know, was a good example. Um, there was this guy who was he ended up being a major creep, but he was like this male feminist professor that was kind of like the dreamboat male feminist and it turned out he had oh, all these God. inappropriate 
things with his students. It's funny. He was all over the place like 10, 15 years ago, which in internet time is 100 years ago. <laughs> you don't hear about this guy anymore, but um, he kind of used the um, dreamy male feminist type of angle. And I think that's how these guys see themselves as in like, I'm this kind of, like all the guys were kind of like these Byronic heroes who yeah. um, had this unrequited love for this muse. And um, she was too ephemeral and burned too hot and was too genius for any man to possess. But they always loved her and they always um, supported her, but she could not be possessed. I think it was that guy's uh, romantic fantasy. Like all these men, there's something homoerotic about how the men bond. <laughs> yeah, bond. they all like they literally are like we're all going to overcome our horny little differences for this girl <laughs> and yeah. we're going to get together and help her and it's supposed to be um at least based on like stuff I read it's supposed to be like they see American individualism as toxic and they see Soviet um collectivism as useful in chess and so then they realize they must do that and like yeah, okay, but wouldn't they have to overcome the toxic individualism in some other tangible way than just calling each other up and all meeting up <laughs> and like getting brunch and like calling her with chess instructions. It doesn't, that had dramatic potential and gets completely deflated. So why is that good? There is this uh, term called Eskimo brothers. And that's when <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, guys have had sex with the same person at different uh, points Stages in time. Stages life, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, some people kind of speculate that uh, whether it's guys uh, running a train on a girl, and there are, like, figurative trains in this uh, thing where it's like... Yes, there uh, are emotional trains. <laughs> yeah, there are emotional trains in this. Like, like I feel like her childhood uh, chess match was an, was an emotional train, <laughs> yeah. and the apartment scene in New York was a little more explicit uh emotional train but one thing that people um sometimes speculate is that in a in a literal train there's something homoerotic happening between the men and the woman is almost like a safe buffer that uh allows like plausible um yeah you know, and a conduit yeah for a conduit. the entire experience and also like this show had a lot of like freudian potential that we're hitting yeah. on over and over again and just gets completely, again, like deflated and thrown out. Um, because what we're talking about is more interesting than what happens. And exactly. what happens, and I, I just keep repeating the same thing eventually. <laughs> like, I mean, I die talking about the fucking Queen's Gambit. But um, <laughs> it, <laughs> like, uh, it doesn't, it's not enough of a fantasy to be, a fun fantasy, but it's a dramatic fantasy with no real tension. And that's supposed to be celebratory. And it's also, I feel, not self-aware or intellectually curious enough to... Like, I wonder how much of the stuff it's even fully aware of. Like, for example, like... Right. The fact that that guy was bisexual, right? And but Or seemed that way, but Or at it least was bi-curious. Bi-curious, right? I don't think that's an accident as far as him bonding with the guys later. Like, I feel like there's those two twins. Were they twins? <laughs> yeah, the, okay. the twins. Okay, the I twins. forgot about the twins. Didn't they read like a gay couple? They, okay. 
Also, the mom at one point explicitly says, like, I can't decide which of them is more handsome or like more delicious. Yeah. And I'm like, all right, so the mom is going to embarrass her and fuck one of the guys. Doesn't happen. Exactly. Maybe, maybe she hooks up with these guys. Nope, doesn't happen. And it's not like I want everyone in these shows to fuck, but they keep saying it's going to happen. But I think they're like, let's say that. So then this is what I think they do. They say certain things. So then your mind fills in the blank. And then they don't have to show it. So they um, yeah. seed it with like, you know, an underage train, but they never show it. So it's like, if you say it, you're going to feel like you're the crazy one for bringing it up. But also they get the benefit of titillating you without actually having to do the bad thing, which is what I right. think is ar- ironic about how people hate cuties so much. And I feel like the problem, I feel like cuties real crime is that it didn't give the viewer the plausible deniability that Netflix viewers enjoy, because I feel like Netflix shows... <laughs> are so shot through with weird kink. But they give you all the plausible deniability. Like when you see Stranger Things and there's like two or three parallel romances and makeout (laughs) scenes and all the people who are fans of Stranger Things, who are super fans, are clearly sexualizing the kids. But the creators can always say, hey, we didn't put anything explicitly sexual in here. And also, it gives the writer... um, what you said before made me think of how it gives it, you wonder how aware the show is, but it also gives the writers and the creators a uh, way of being seeming self-aware. You know what I yeah. mean? Like winking at like, we know that this is a dramatic way that this could go. We know that this is possible and maybe you were thinking it. So now we're going to put it in your minds and then we're going to avoid it fully. And that's not good. <laughs> but people enjoy that because I guess it's soothing. But I again, like I was like, if I want to be soothed, I don't even want you to do the winking thing that gives you some sort of way out as a writer. Um, and it makes me think about, you remember the movie It and like the Stephen King book where Literally, the girl gets a train run on her in the actual book. (laughs) And then, like, it's like, it almost makes me, in some way, like, not nostalgic, but, like, yearn for something like that or yearn for something like even, like, House of Cards where it's always, like, bisexual threesomes and whatever because it's, like... At least, At least wear your pathology on your sleeve. Yeah. Yeah. Commit to what you're doing, but don't... Don't gaslight me. Yeah. This... The show has... I'll actually side with Twitter and bringing up gaslighting constantly because I do feel gaslit by the Queen's Gambit and the Queen's Gambit discourse, 100%. And I feel like that's like, like I said before, I feel like that's like Cutie's real crime is that it did not play the silly games that this show or or Stranger Things plays where, you know, they make you seem like the crazy one if you bring if you bring it up. So people get, like there was this uh, reporter who had this kind of horny interview with um she had this kind of horny interview with the guy from um stranger things and all the fans attacked her like how dare you and but when you look at most of their posts about them they're like oh my god look how beautiful they look and everything i'm like you guys are kind of sexualizing these people yourselves like you're mad at her because i think she's whole she's a harsh funhouse mirror to your own fandom with these people and you don't want to be uncomfortably confronted with what you're um getting out getting out of this and um like there's a scene with the girl is changing and she's in her panties i'm like why is that even there the underage <laughs> like 
why do we have to see her change? It's just it's for just the weird. realism. Yeah. <laughs> for the realism of the story. kids. <laughs> yeah. Um, you notice what I'm talking about, right? Where they uh, she's like in a tank top and panties. Yeah. Yeah. And it was like, okay. Also, another thing in the Queen's Gambit that we didn't touch on, but I do want to bring up is besides the twins, one of the weirdest things is her little drunk weekend alone where she just like literally is hungover and then everyone leaves to watch a movie and then she calls her mom and is like, hey, I'm drinking and I also lost my virginity and not those exact words, but the mom is like, oh, shucks, (laughs) which like none of this is realistic, but and without even not, you know, TV doesn't need to be fucking realistic, but like, couldn't there have been some sort of upset there with the mom or something? Um, But there are no consequences. And then she proceeds to smoke weed and get drunk all weekend. And we're supposed to like, I guess, look at it as some kind of rock bottom or showing how much she's getting into alcohol. But to me, it just literally looked like a fun weekend. I thought it was, <laughs> like- going, for, I thought it was going for the fun weekend, personally. Like, like, I feel like, I think it painted her attachment issues as a feminist mantra. So it's like, throughout the thing, she can't attach to anyone. And I think almost everything in it is painted as either this is a tragic cry for help or this is rock and roll awesome. And I can't figure out. (laughs) So, for example, her drinking herself into a stupor while these people abandoned her and didn't even take her along after one guy just took her virgin so a guy just basically takes her virginity and he just abandons her with his friends without bothering to wake her up and she drinks into uh you know whatever and is hung over and keeps smoking weed on one hand it's like what you said is true this could be a real sign for help and a real bad uh, rock bottom. Or you can also look at it and say, wow, this is really empowering. Like, she doesn't need a man. She's using yeah. men. You know, you know, like, she And it looks like guy. her mom's super cool about it. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, at every point. And there's um, a and lot guess- of things like that in this thing where it's like, are you criticizing this or making it seem awesome? Are these tranquilizers? Is this like a cool uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll relationship to drugs? Or is this a uh, after-school special relationship to drugs? And I wasn't really sure sure until the very end when it has her cold turkey to beat the guy right. so i'm like okay i guess this thing eventually does think drugs are bad but i feel like it just did that because it, at the end it just had to make that decision i guess yeah and they're not like drugs are bad but they're also not so bad that they have real consequences on your life and they're also not so bad that you um that you lose <laughs> the chess. <laughs> they're not so bad that you have to do anything to quit them. Like in the show, she literally does nothing to quit besides like start hanging out with Jolene, which she is a whole other thing. She talks to her magical thing. Negro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She talks she to her magical Negro. Who people swore was not a magical Negro. Who, yeah, they have Jolene say in not these exact words, but pretty close, like literally no, I'm not your magical Negro. <laughs> like, I'm not your savior. I'm just here to save you. And it's yeah, like, exactly. But you know, okay, as, so long I guess- as, <laughs> as long as I say I'm not, you know, a magical Negro, then all my magical Negro behavior is automatically uh, negated. You know, by hanging a lampshade yeah, it's on like- it. It's like people breaking up and then saying they're not breaking up. They're taking a break. Yeah. <laughs> and then everyone's supposed to like believe it. It's like they, it, I could hear them in the writer's room at that moment being like, yeah, she's feeling like a magical Negro. And someone's like, all right, how do we solve that problem? And the solution is not to like add character somewhere in the show or give her any shit of her own. It's like, 
let's make her a lawyer who's dating a white man, like a paralegal, and therefore she's like, she's using white people. And then also she can say to Beth that they genuinely need each other. So then no one will think that. And it worked. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. Like, and, uh, and for the type of uh, black Twitter person that loves this kind of um, representation matter stuff, like, for example, if you do you know who I think Jolene was modeled on? Uh, it hit me today. I think Jolene was modeled on Jessica Williams and two dope queens because <laughs> that's their kind of humor when uh, she says, hey, I'm sleeping with a rich white guy. And how can you be a radical and sleep with a rich white guy? What are your radical friends saying? It's like, you know, fuck them if they can't take a joke, if they can't get a joke. And I'm like, right. That's such weird, modern, millennial, black millennial, BuzzFeed, blue check Twitter humor. So I went and I tracked down the book and the book has none of that. That weird, <laughs> I'm getting the bag. I'm having sex with the rich married white guy. <laughs> yeah. In the get- 60s, she said she's securing the bag. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she didn't say securing the bag explicitly, no, but, she but it was well basically, she might as well have. It was yeah. it was presentist. They just stopped short. The same way they stopped short of her actually using the words magical Negro. Yeah. She might as well have. It was the same thing with the get in the bag and um, me getting the bag and thirsting and sleeping with a rich white guy is <laughs> is radical. That's kind of like what that crowd says today. Like, you know, hey, we're pro-black and woke but we also talk about zaddy all day it was it was very um weird but like you said it it worked people write about her like it's a totally different character than what i watch except for that one article you sent that i thought was pretty good where it says that it lets down it mishandles its black characters yeah yeah that was that and there was one in like i think it was like bitch media or something that was excited by the insider article and it's these those articles too like what I liked about the, I think it was Business Insider, like that article about it was that it was very straightforward. It wasn't like this like huge overture. It was like, here we go again with Netflix, you know, mishandling black characters. It's pretty obvious that they do. And it's pretty obvious they tried to avoid it by the character basically saying she's not a magical Negro, but she is. So whatever. <laughs> and it wasn't like over dramatic about it. Whereas there are other articles where it's like, Jolene's the spinoff we need. <laughs> and uh, these like fawning uh, uh I hate that bloggy diary style of writing that they that I feel like BuzzFeed has popularized where everyone yeah. seems like a giddy teenage girl writing in her diary. And you look at them, they're like, You're 35 years old and you went to <laughs> an Ivy League school. Like, why are you writing like this? Yeah, and you don't want to eat the rich. You work at Conde Nast. <laughs> yeah. So like, what are you doing? That's not I'm a hypocrite too, but at least I don't like pretend as much as other people do. And it's, it reminds me again of like, you know, just circling back to these same fucking articles, but the Matt Christman article from Current Affairs that w- was published a couple years ago in it, he said like, it's disturbing that the hive mind created, it's like a hive mind of positivity with outlets that depend on the clicks and engagement from these shows, shows that are written specifically to be like gift and memed and get the engagement. And then you have all these editors and writers trying to convince their audience that this, I think he says cultural junk food is as healthy <laughs> as other stuff because television is the best medium for the these internet addicted people. Oh yeah, And I think that's all true. And it's only, that was published in 2017. It's only gotten worse. And you see it with stuff like this, where it's like, if you dissent at all, you 
one of the comments on the Vulture article was like, this writer needs counseling <laughs> and whatever. And I know internet commenters are a special type of insane, but I think, like you said, people on Twitter do this too, where just expressing any sort of dissent for the positivity and celebration or the pummeling of someone gets you called, you know, whatever you're going to be called. Like, I feel like if people called Lovecraft bad, they would be called racist when in reality, the show is pretty racist. Oh man, that's brave of you to say because a lot of white people <laughs> aren't allowed to say that. Like, as a black Yeah, don't per- tell anyone I said that. As a, uh, I mean, you know what? We might have to cut that out. You might end up getting a blacklisted from something. You know? Um, I mean, even as black people, uh, myself and people I know have gotten grief for... Uh, and one of the interesting things is one of the first things people would keep asking me because on the Shanship, on the Champagne Sharks Twitter account, is not a picture of me. Um, you know, I was talking about Lovecraft. One of the first things people say is, "Are you black?" And then I would be like, um, "Well, yeah, not that it matters, but I, I am." And then they would either just stop responding, or they would bring up something else, but didn't follow up on the "Are you black?" thing. You know, so I'd be like, "Well, did you know this or this and that?" And I'm like, "Wait a minute, but what was the point of the? If the idea was that me not being black." invalidated my opinion then why is me being black not giving me extra weight in my and it's like you didn't really care about if i'm black or not you were just looking for some reason to shut me up and that didn't work it reminds me Hmm? of um sorry this uh this book that i've been reading lately called the twittering machine i forget the author but it's about you know these platforms etc etc and like the the most consistent thing about them is that there are the rules are set by the people who are pushed up by the platform. So whoever posts the most and creates the most sort of chaos, whatever that is, those are the people who then control the discourse and the rules of the discourse. (laughs) And so like you asserting, you know, like just simply stating a fact, like, yeah, I am black. That was part of the rules, but now it doesn't fit into the equation. So now the rules are rewritten that you are an exception to the rule and there must be something else wrong with you that you dislike the show. And it's never a problem of the show. It's always a problem of the audience. And that's what's crazy to me is that I'm like, we're no longer talking about the show. We're talking about whatever's happened to you in your personal life. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one. Go to, again, patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two. Be good. Be good.